Welcome to Clets Heads, the podcast about bilingual children. My name is Sharon Onsworth, linguist at Radboud University in Nijmegen, the Netherlands, a mother of two bilingual children. This episode of Clets Heads is all about bilingualism and ageing. Is it possible to forget a language you learnt as a child when you're older? And can being bilingual actually help you as you get older, acting as a kind of therapy for your ageing brain? Researcher Meryl Kaiser is going to tell us the answers. I've also got another quick and easy for you, a concrete tip you can put into practice straight away to make the most out of the bilingualism in your family, class or clinic. Our Clets Head of the Week is the nine-year-old Eugene growing up in the UK, and he tells us how he would feel if he forgot his two heritage languages, Korean and French, and could only speak English. Keep listening to find out more. If we're lucky, we'll all grow old. And if we're even luckier, we'll stay healthy for as long as possible. But even if we stay healthy, it's inevitable that we slow down, both physically and mentally. We often don't function as well as we used to as we get older, we become forgetful, and we may also develop problems like dementia. Research shows that being bilingual might help when it comes to slowing down these kinds of problems. Why is this the case? And does this apply to all bilinguals? In this episode, I'm joined by language scientist from the University of Groningen, Merel Kaiser, and she's going to tell us the answers to those questions and more. I started by asking Merel about a different topic, though, language loss. Quite a few children who grow up with two or more languages end up preferring one of the two, usually the one that they use at school or the language that's most widely spoken in their community. In many cases, they no longer actively use their other language, their heritage language. What happens when these children get older? Do they lose this language altogether? Or is the language just lying dormant somewhere in the depths of their mind? In a previous episode of the podcast, I spoke to a 10-year-old bilingual girl who told me that this is exactly what happened to her. Naya is growing up in the UK with an English-speaking father and a Japanese-speaking mother, and she actively uses both languages. She did, however, used to know a third language. You lived in Denmark, didn't you, when you were younger? Yeah, I lived there for five years. I was born there. And could you speak Danish then? Yes, I actually, all I did was speak Danish, but now it's drifted away. So can you remember anything in Danish or not? I can only say, hi, my name is Naya. Oh, do you want to say that for me? Hi, me noun and Naya. That's all. Really? Isn't that funny yeah. how that happened? Yeah, but I li- I can say my favourite bread. Oh, what's that then? Hopwell. What kind of bread is that? It's kind of seeds inside, and it's not like a normal bread that you would eat here. It's kind of lots of seed clumped together, but then that's the bread part, and it's, yeah, I love it. Mmm, sounds delicious. So, we just heard from Naya, and it was a really interesting conversation. I remember when we had it, I was kind of flabbergasted when she told me, no, I really don't know any more Danish. Um, What happens in cases like that? If children stop using a language actively, do they really lose it altogether? 
Yeah, losing, right? Lose, losing a language is interesting. Is it really loss or is it uh, temporarily inaccessibility? Can you not really get to it so easily? Um, and I think in we have a, a difference between language loss and language attrition. So sort of in that word attrition is already, um, it's already in there that it's not completely lost. Uh, and there is such a thing called the savings account or the savings effect. It's sometimes called that if children um, have used, and in this case, she she went to school, um, right, in Denmark, yeah, so yeah, or preschool, yeah. or um, so it's, she, she will have used Danish quite a bit before she stopped using it altogether. So when she starts, if, um, or not so much when, but if at one point in her life she starts picking Danish up again, uh, it will be easier to relearn. Um, so it's still there somewhere, uh, hidden, uh, you can say, uh, hidden language rather than completely lost. But it, five years old is quite young, though, um, to uh, to really stop using a language altogether. So uh, young in what way? Well, young if you if you're she she will not have been able to read yet in Danish, and if you're if they, she'd been let's say I don't know nine, um, she will have been literate in Danish, and there's it's easier to maintain. You also so your 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 foundation is a lot more solid uh, compared to if you if you don't have that in place, and it's also easier to maintain, right? So if you want to um, uh, to read something or to read a book in Danish or uh, look at some internet um, pages, for instance, it's easier to uh, to keep it up than if you don't have that. Yeah. Yeah, so I suppose we can, can we think of it as though like the language has gone to sleep, like it's gone for, gone in hibernation? Yeah, like dormant yeah. almost, right? Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. And it's, and it can be reactivated again if um, she were put in a situation where she was reimmersed or uh, put back in a situation where she, where she hears Danish and uh, can pick it up again. So that becomes easier to do compared to someone who's never learned Danish in their lives. Uh, that's a, a different story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned then, uh, you know, actively using the language matters, but also the age at which you maybe stop using the language, whether you can read uh, in that language. Are there other factors that determine the, the extent to which your language goes into its uh, hibernation? hibernation <laughs> hibernation state yeah uh, yeah i think there's also some things that are uh very intricate and uh, for instance uh, there is a study we just talked about age uh, and how if if children are older then they will have had a, a, a bigger or better chance of maintaining the language one of the things that uh, we do know there is a study that uh, generated quite a bit of interest when it first came out, like early two thousands, and this has to is it it's an international adoptees uh, story. So these were Korean uh, children who were adopted into francophone families between the ages of four to nine. So that's quite a big age range, obviously. But mm -hmm. nine years old, I mean, we just talked about if she had been nine, yeah. it may have been a different story. But these some of these children were nine years old. Uh, and when they were adopted into um, uh, their new families. So they made a switch to French and they were retested or they were tested again when they were in their, their 20s. Uh, and compared to a group of French um, children, youngsters, young people who'd never really had that Korean uh, experience or exposed to Korean in any way. Uh, and they were looked in terms of behavior. So do they really recognize still certain sound differences uh, that are Korean versus uh, other languages? But also they looked at their brain activity. And in, in this case, there was nothing there seemingly. So there was no trace, no remnant. And we just talked about savings, uh, but this would... Um, be a counterexample of that. So there didn't seem to be anything that was saved. So they looked similar to the French uh, controls. We we call that controls. So the um, the other participants who didn't have that 
um, Korean background. And in that case, this is very, very extreme. Uh, and trauma will have come into that too. So mm -hmm. if, if our brain copes with trauma in a certain way, if, if there are memories that are really have negative associations, and language is a memory, is a type of memory too, uh, then it will be harder. It's like suppressed. It's a kind of survival mechanism. Um, so, and that, that also goes into it. Uh, so attitudes in general, socio-effective um, variables that can also determine to what extent someone will remember or will maintain a language. Right, right. So socio-effective variables, we mean like how people feel. Uh, how they feel, yeah. yeah how they, um, how, what their attitudes, do they think it's important to, uh, to maintain a language? And in the case of children, uh, what, what would the attitude be if their parents? So do they try to actively encourage uh, their children to still use a language or, or do they, uh, not care so much? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of factors, like as is often the case when we're talking about anything to do with bilingualism. Exactly. Yeah, it's hard to really point to there's one factor, this is the decisive or this is the most important uh, thing. I think it's a combination of different factors. And there's individual differences too. So if the same, maybe even brother and sister, if they're put in the same situation, uh, then one might respond very differently, although the input's the same, the situation's very similar. But each person just still comes with their own um, uh, toolkit almost and, and their own. So it's it's hard to predict outcomes of a a language loss kind of situation yeah. where people stop actively using a language. Yeah. And in fact, in an earlier episode of the podcast, we spoke with Joanna Parody about the all these different factors that can impact not losing a language necessarily, but uh, learning a language as a child or learning more than one language. Um, so if anybody's interested in that, they can go back and listen to that. That's the first episode of this uh, this season. So summing up then this idea of, of losing languages or uh, or not uh, as a child so the example of naya so we see there are some cases extreme cases you'd say uh, like the the korean example that you just gave where there really seem to be no traces of that language but there are also cases where it is more it's gone into hibernation and if you wake it up it will wake up again yeah that's a nice way of putting it yeah if you wake it up again and do we know, because I know there have been studies looking at, um, you know, relearning a language that children have learned early on in uh, childhood. It, so is it really the case that if you did that, you will be better at learning it later on? Yeah, you you will be. Yeah, exactly. You will be better at it. You'll be pick it up faster compared to someone who didn't have that experience uh, growing up. Uh, if there's no other factors such as the traumatic experiences that we talked about earlier on. Uh, and there are also, I mean, we talked about international adoptees and that's quite an extreme um, case, but there are also studies done by your yeah. colleagues in Nijmegen, right, who looked at uh, also international adoptees, but who may not have had that traumatic experience and relearning um, their language that they they once heard Chinese uh, um, in in this case, um, and that were they picked it up faster um, compared to children who didn't have that experience. So there are definitely uh, studies looking into that. Uh, also, of of people who live in communities such as in US, where there's where they have a heritage language background such as Spanish uh, and when they move to for instance college classes that they um, seem to be picking it up faster um, compared to peers who don't come from that background so yes there are studies looking into that yeah okay so for parents if children maybe stop using a language then there is some hope that it might be there yeah it might be there somewhere it's never I mean it's always um 
an enrichment, um, I would say. And and even if at that stage in life they don't do anything with it, if, if at one point it may come back and uh, they'll be put in a situation where it'll be useful to relearn, and then they have that to fall back on to to build on. Yeah, this actually makes me think of my cousin. So my middle cousin who grew up Dutch English bilingual. Um, and she was like, I don't know, eight, nine or so when I arrived in the Netherlands and I spoke English to her, um, but she really only wanted to speak Dutch. And I actually even switched to speaking Dutch with her because I thought I really want a relationship with this kid. Uh, and it's really funny because when she was little, she only spoke English and then she went and slept at a friend's house and decided she only wanted to speak Dutch like them. Um, and then, and then when, uh, and then was, re- would really speak Dutch. I mean, she obviously had some English input still. It wasn't that there was none, none there at all. Um, but, but now, you know, she works in, she works in Paris. She speaks English, uh, at work and, and, French, I assume she has to. Uh, but now we only speak English to each other, like ever. We never speak Dutch to each other, and it's really funny. I think that's just a really hopeful story when you think, oh, you know, that you know, that's it. It's gone. They, they're not speaking that language to me anymore. That actually, you know, it, it is there, and her English is just like you know. Yeah, no, exactly, and it's a hopeful. It's nice to say, and I can also definitely relate. I mean. I have twin boys who are now 13 and they lived in the US for a year, spoke only English also to each other. So their entire interaction was in English. And then they decided when they started school in the Netherlands again, that that was not something uh, that they wanted to continue. Uh, But now they're picking it up again in secondary school very fast, um, going through it and sounding very, um, well, one of them at least, native-like. So it's, Mm -hmm. I agree, yeah, you you see that happening. And normally all theories that we know about in terms of second language acquisition and uh, and multilingualism, they break down in your own children. But in this case, it works, right? It it does seem to to work that way. Yeah, it's very, uh, it can be both dangerous and informative, uh, applying the theories that you learn as a researcher to your own so children. true yes uh, yeah yeah we're going to leave our conversation with Meryl now to hear from our Kletz head of the week avid reader Eugen tells us how he would feel if he were to lose two of his three languages Kletz head of the week my name is Eugen and I'm nine years old and I speak French, English and Korean. Okay, do Where do you live, Eugene? I live in Barking and Dagenham. Uh-huh. And that's in the UK, right? Yes. In England, yeah. And who do you speak English with? My friends and my teachers and everyone outside of my house. Uh-huh. And what about your other languages? Who do you speak French and Korean with? Uh, French with my dad and Korean with my mum. I speak English with my brother too. Ah, okay. Have you got one brother? Yes. The older, a big brother or a little brother? Big. Big, aha. Uh-huh. And so do you only speak English to your brother? Sometimes French, sometimes Korean. Ah, so you sometimes change. That's interesting. So why why do you change sometimes? Which language do you speak? Uh, I don't know why I change, but sometimes when I change my voice, my, my brother thinks that I'm somebody else. Like sometimes when I speak Korean, he thinks that it's our mom. And when I, when I speak French, he thinks that it's our dad sometimes. Aha. So you're trying to, are you trying to trick him? <laughs> okay. So what's the best thing about speaking French and Korean? That we can travel around the world and make new friends and talk with our family. Mm-hmm. And do you, um, do you get to go to France or Korea much? 
I go to Korea a lot and France last year for skiing. I don't go to France that much. Mm-hmm. Ah, and um, do you like going to uh, to France and Korea? Yeah. So imagine if you suddenly forgot how to speak French and Korean and you could only speak English. How would you feel? I'd feel lost for words if I went to Korea and France. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, isn't it? Because you wouldn't know what to say, you mean? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, tell me, is there a language that you find easier to speak in? I think it's English because I normally speak English. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, do you have any words that you say almost always in Korean or almost always in French, even when you speak in English? So in our house, so I live in, I didn't say, did I? I, I live in the Netherlands, so in Holland, and, uh, and we all speak English at home. But we have some words that we always say in Dutch, like, for example, knuffeltje. Knuffeltje means soft toy, like a cuddly toy. And we always say that in Dutch, even when we're speaking even when we're speaking English, do you have any words like that in Korean or French? I used to say "ibul," which means blanket in uh, Korean, because I forgot what to how it's said in English, and then one day I suddenly realised what it said. Uh huh. And what was it again in Korean? "Idol." "Ibul." "Ibul." Uh huh. Good. I've learned a Korean word then. That's good. Tell me about you. So uh, your mum and your dad, do you sometimes get angry at your mum and dad? Do they sometimes do things that get you annoyed? Yeah. Yeah? Uh-huh. And when you do that, do you speak to them? Which language do you speak to them in? Depends on if it's my mum or dad. Ah, okay. So you don't switch languages when you get annoyed? Mm, nah. Nah. I, I, if, I get, if I get annoyed, sometimes, if I get annoyed with my children, then sometimes I decide to speak Dutch instead of English. Which is a bit, a bit strange, really. Yeah, that's what my mum and dad does, yeah. Is that what your mum and dad do? Yeah. So they switch to English then? They switch to French and Korean when they're angry, but they mostly speak French and Korean, so I don't know if they're angry or not. And let's talk about school. So it's, school's all in English, right? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And do you, do you, do you sometimes speak French at school? Because you said you get French at school. We just learn how to speak French. So so you're at primary school, right? Yes. Yeah. So do you actually have French lessons yet or not? We do. Ah, you do. Uh-huh. Okay. Like the French basics. Ah, okay. Like bonjour, ça va. Yeah. And and what about uh, what about Korean? Do you sometimes get the chance to speak Korean at school? When my friends ask. Ah, when your friends ask. Uh-huh. What do they ask you then? They're like, how do you say this? How do you say that? And what about when you're asleep and you're dreaming? Do you dream at night? Not really. Not really? How do you know? It's normally just black for me. And I just get these weird patterns. Mm-hmm. And and uh, do you like reading? Yes. Mm-hmm. What's your, what are you reading at the moment? Are you reading a book at the moment? At school, we're reading the book called Holes. So that's, that's what you're reading at school and in English. And what are you... Are you reading? Do you read at home before? Do you read at night before you go to bed, or when, do you just read during the day? Yeah, I read a lot of books during the day. Ah, do you? Tell me about them then. I have a whole collection. Not sure about Han Han Nam Meh. They even have their own have their episodes on TV too, 
and Polanyi, mm-hmm. a mad scientist, which is a girl, and always sell- saves the day. She sounds cool. Are some in Korean and some in French? Uh, and uh, I forgot the third one. Well, that's in Korean. Yeah, and Lidarton and Lidarton and the other book is in French. Uh huh. So you can read in all three languages. Yes. Oh, that's cool. Can I ask you about Korean? Because when I see Korean, I just see lots of little circles and lines. And how how was it for you to learn how to read in Korean? Uh, the way I learned it is when I saw my mum read, and uh, I took a few lessons with her, and I started off with Korean because I was born in Korea. And um, that how is it to read? It? Do you find it easy, or do you find it difficult, or is it actually just normal? I find it. Easy now since once a year I spend one one month in Korea and it's easier for me now. Mm-hmm. Since last year I read a lot of books and learned a lot from my mum's older sisters. Uh-huh. And can you write in Korea? Yeah, by making lots of mistakes. Ah, but that's normal, right, when you're learning something or not? It's easy for me to read but it's hard for me to write because... I know the basic, like, annyeonghaseyo, hello. Yeah, well, it is easier to read than it is to write, right? Yeah. I think I learned how to read French first or and read English first before I started writing. Mm-hmm. Can you write in French as well? Yeah, a bit more easier. Yeah. It's the same alphabet, isn't it, as English, so that probably helps. You write it, like, in English, but you have to add a few slashes and lines. Ah, like the accents above the letters. So let's talk about animals. Do you like animals? Yes. Oh, okay. So I'm always interested in the languages that animals speak, right? So, and the sounds they make in different languages. So in what does a cow say in English? Uh, moo. Yeah, moo. Right, in Dutch, a cow says boo. What about in, do you know what a cow says in French or Korean? Uh, in Korean, it's um, and in French, it's like uh-huh. like in French, it's M E U H, and in Korean, it's a zero, a line which has a, a six sticking out of it, and a Q, and a, another Q with a line with a line and another line sticking out of it. Ah. Let's see. We're gonna we're gonna finish up now. So I can speak French, but I can't speak Korean. So maybe is there? Can you think of a word that you think will be quite difficult for me to say? What word could you teach me in Korean? Nationalism. Okay, say it again. Nationalism. I don't know what it means, but I just found it in a book. <laughs> oh, let's hope it doesn't mean something naughty, eh? Nationalism. I think it's like. I think it's like na- something nas- national national news or something. Ah, okay. And what about a word that you uh a word that you like or something yummy? Tteokbokki. Tteokbokki? Did I say that right? Yes. What does it mean? Uh it's a type of food in Korea where it's dipped in spicy sauce and you and it's mm. with I'm not sure, but like dumplings. And then you 
dip it in spicy sauce. And then that's what people in Korea like to eat, which is spicy. Mm, that sounds yummy. Do you like that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're going to finish now. So I always finish by asking the person I'm talking to to say, uh, teach me thank you and goodbye in one of their languages. So maybe you can teach me that in Korean. So how do you say thank you in Korean? Gomapsamnida uh, to an adult and gomawa to a friend. And goodbye is annyeong to a friend. Uh, if you're staying at her house, the guest would say, you could say annyeongi geseyo. And if they're going, say annyeongi gaseyo. Annyeongi gaseyo. Yes. That, well, should we say that, that that's goodbye? Annyeongi gaseyo. And what was thank you? Gomapsamnida to an adult. Okay, let's let's do that. Gomatsinuda. Gomatsinuda. Is that good? Yes, close. Gomatsinuda and aniyato. What was goodbye? Uh, if you're staying at a house, it's anyongi geseyo. Anyongi gesu. Anyongi geseyo. Thank you. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Let's head off the week. Often parents of bilingual children uh, live in a in a different place from where they grew up, um, use a second or even a third language in their daily lives, sometimes as much as sometimes even more than the the, the language that they grew up with. Um, you know, and I noticed thinking about myself, I've lived like over 20 years in the Netherlands and I definitely speak English in a different way than I did when I arrived, right? I don't sound half as northern as I used to unfortunately and uh, and you, there are definitely dutchisms in in what i what i say maybe some of the listeners can even pick up on those um uh, and that's even though i use english daily right in in uh, both at home and at work and of course that's part and parcel of being bilingual that you know one language influences the other um but thinking about you know this idea of what happens when you get uh, as you get older, like we spoke about with uh, with Naya, um, you know, now I'm young and fit. Absolutely, yeah, more or less. <laughs> uh, what what's going to happen then to me and my English when I get older? Right, so I'm going to carry on living here, I guess. Mm. Does it matter, for example, that I only started learning Dutch when I was 26? Yeah, right. So maybe my my English is going to be okay. What we I know you've done a lot of research about what happens when you move somewhere else and what happens to your mother tongue. Maybe you can tell us a bit about that. Yeah, exactly. And it, I mean, it's in a way it would be nice, right, to be able to predict, so to save or to have some sort of guarantee in place that you'll be fine when you when you're sixty or sixty five or a, a little bit older. And I think in general you are. It's it's just very hard to predict um, what's going to happen per person because there are all these individual differences. And you're right. We looked quite a, a lot of people who move from their first language environment to a, a, another um, language set, setting situation. And there's huge, so there's people who've been away for 40, 50 years and really still sound um, very native-like. So there's almost nothing in their speech done in terms of word choice, grammatical structures, nothing that would um, suggest that they've been away from such a long time. Maybe apart from the fact they sound a little bit old-fashioned, sometimes archaic, right? Almost like time stood still for them. It's like a, this snapshot of what their first language used to sound like so many years ago. Uh, and there's others who... Um, uh, who's, who's yeah who 
more quickly show the effects of uh, having another language. It's also, there's a, small studies, really small studies, maybe a little bit artificial if you talk about daily life. Uh, but if you're able, to, or if you're asked to name um, an item, so you see a picture, for instance, this is done in a lab kind of setting, right? So it's not so much on the street. Um, but if people come in for um, more of an experimental session, and you have to name a picture in your in another language 10 times, then it's harder to do that in your mother tongue, although you don't even speak that language so well. And it's a very different situation for you and for a lot of other parents who do speak the language of the new environment to a, a really high level. Um, and then the question is, so what to what extent does that influence? And it, you're, you're right. I mean, they always influence each other, right? There's always um, uh, uh, one language uh, that um, yeah, impacts on the other. Interesting thing is, though, that if people get older, what we um, did often notice is that they started becoming stronger, if anything, right? Becoming stronger again in their first language. And that can sometimes have to do with like a preoccupation of the past, like nostalgia. I don't know if you, how you want to call that, but also um, that involves the language of uh, older uh, or, or past days. Uh, and that would be something that we did see. In general, what happens when we get older is that our brain changes as much as we hate it. It, it does happen. Um, also means that certain functions of our brain, like inhibition, they tend to decline. This is not felt as strong for everyone, um, but overall that's true. Um, so it becomes harder to separate languages because of that as well. So there might be more influences either way so that there's more um, English in your Dutch or more Dutch in your English. Uh, and what you don't often do see is that the language that has always been dominant and that can really change, I mean, patterns, language dominance patterns change throughout the lifetime, that becomes more more strong at that point in time, stronger. Yeah, and I think it's good to say as well that uh, we by no means mean there's no kind of negative evaluation of one language influence in the other, right? That's just part and parcel of being bilingual. We've discussed that quite a bit on the on the podcast, and and by saying people who you know I don't sound like uh, it's not that I don't sound native like whatever that is because that's a whole other discussion uh, that researchers have as well. It's just I don't sound like what I would have sounded like if I'd have grown, stayed living in England. Uh, I don't sound like, I don't sound like what my sister sounds like who grew up in the same place, but now still lives in England, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a factual it's observation, right? It's not so much that you, that there's some sort of value judgment attached to it. I think it's, if anything, you have more languages to tap, to tap into and to, uh, as a resource. Um, and that sure, I mean, of course that, that shows that has a, it leaves its mark, but there's, all the richness associated with that from being able to talk or to converse and to, uh, yeah, to, to talk to different networks. Cause that's another thing right? you have a, a larger network typically. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, thinking about what happens to your, uh, to your, the first language that you knew as you get older in an environment where you speak and use a, another language, um, are there certain aspects of language? So, you know, I'm thinking vocabulary or grammar or, you know, phonology, your accent. Hmm. Uh, are, are there more, are certain aspects more prone to being uh, forgotten? Yes, definitely. Yeah. So there are certain domains of language that are just much more susceptible to uh, to loss or to be forgotten. And one of the things is words. Uh, and and, we're, and this is something that I think a lot of people can relate to, even if you definitely. don't, right? If you don't speak another language, uh, sometimes it's hard. You can't find a certain word, so you you find it hard. If you're if you know that you're searching uh, for a certain word, but you can't find it or not in not 
in a, a quick enough way anyways. Um, and I think if people who are multilingual tend to have that quite a bit, so they'll find a, a word in one language, although they're looking for the word in the other language. Uh, so yeah, the lexicon, as we call it, so words is something that's affected quite early on. Um, there's other domains that are more robust to changes and the grammar, the grammatical structures in general is a, is one such domain. And that tends to be um, because you've there's a, normally a solid foundation, but you have to use it, right? You can you can definitely avoid constructions that you're a little bit uncertain about, that you don't know, or you you, you tend to, um, yeah, be a bit sensitive. You don't know um, uh, how a certain structure works. So you can go around that. But in general, you do still have to form um, some sort of coherent uh, uh, utterance. So you need the grammar to do that. Um, yeah, and there's, so there are definitely, but within that, within grammar too, there are certain parts of that that might go faster compared to others uh, and that tend to be the the harder ones to acquire in children too uh, so for instance there's this this thing called regression or the regression hypothesis so if things are acquired really late in children and there are some structures uh, like strong verbs right that would be an example or um the passive passive constructions those tend to be hard to really master for for children and they also tend to be the ones that are easy to go in a language loss language attrition situation so strong verbs like bring and brought well exactly uh, yeah and uh, you regularize uh, people will tend to regularize things and it also because it's less of a burden it's you, you just have to right normally you, you can remember a rule but then all the exceptions um to that rule would have to be stored independently and if you don't have to do that then that's quite a a cognitive load reduction you can say you don't need so much brain space if you uh, if you want to call in that way yeah yeah and i guess you know if if you know you haven't used brought for a very long time it's harder to to get it out of your uh, out of the network to wake it up again absolutely yeah that's a really good point too so if there's there's everything that's been used quite recently and that's used quite frequently too so frequent words tend not to be a problem right but if there's words that are not used so much and you you haven't used them for a long time then they tend to be the one that the ones that yeah that that well, we talked about hibernation, right? Those words are definitely hibernating and you will get to it mostly mostly in a moment where you don't need it, right? Like two hours after the fact or something will pop up uh, and it's, oh, that's, that's the word that I was looking for. Um, but yeah. Yeah, no, I uh, completely uh, recognize this situation. I'm sure many of our listeners do too. Before Miral tells us about some of the benefits bilingualism might have as you get older, Time for another Klet's Heads quick and easy. A concrete tip you can put into practice straight away to make the most out of the bilingualism in your family, class or clinic. Klet's Heads quick and easy. As parents of bilingual children, we often think about what we're going to do and how we're going to approach raising a bilingual child when the kids are young. But after that, we often just carry on merrily without thinking too much about what we're doing, whether our approach is on the right track. An important part of bilingual parenting is to occasionally stop, think and evaluate what you're doing, whether, for example, your family language policy is still right for you and your children. If you take some time to do this, you can make any necessary adjustments before it's too late. Questions you might want to ask yourself are, 
Is everyone happy? Are things going well? Are we achieving our goals by doing it this way? It's important not to be afraid to change things, to choose a different route if needs be. And if things are going well, take a moment to think about why this is and how can you make sure that this success will continue in the future. If you're looking for help or inspiration, check out Eowyn Chrisfield's book, Bilingual Families, a Practical Language Planning Guide, or Adam Beck's latest book, Bilingual Success Stories Around the World. We will, by the way, be discussing both of those books in detail in a future episode of the podcast. As a teacher of bilingual children, you can also stop, think and evaluate. Ask yourself, with or without colleagues, how the bilingual children in your class or at your school are getting on. Are there things that could be improved or changed? To help you do this, use the materials developed by the Language Friendly School and the Peach Project. They have a whole guide for educators. The links to both are in the show notes. So the Kletz Heads quick and easy for today is to stop, think and evaluate. Kletz Heads quick and easy. So we've spoken then about things that, well, go wrong. I mean, you can't see I'm kind of like, you know, between quotation marks, I go wrong. It's not really go wrong, but uh, things that change maybe in a, a less than positive way as you as you age as a bilingual person. There's, of course, research that shows that being bilingual can actually have all sorts of benefits when you get older. So maybe we can uh, talk about that now. I mean, it's even claimed and, and, and this is a, a, a nice result from research that is very popular in the media. Uh, it makes a good headline, right? That bilingual uh, bilingual people, bilinguals will get dementia four or five years later than people who've lived largely monolingual lives. That, of course, seems, yeah, it seems like a nice prospect as, as a bilingual. But um, is it true? What's your reading of uh, the research that we have so far? Well, yeah, with, with headlines, it's always the case that there's a truth in it, right? But it's, it's much more nuanced uh, normally. So yeah, it is um, indeed true. So people who, and this is a quite a robust finding. So it's been found in different settings, different contexts involving different languages. Um, people who are um, multilingual and really also still actively using multiple languages, I think that's important to, uh, uh, to add, have been found to... Um, go to a doctor at a later age. Uh, so it's not, and this is important to underscore, so it's not that they get dementia uh, later, uh, but they present with the first symptoms at a later stage. And it seems to be across all of those different contexts, it does seem to be this four, four and a half uh, year mark that they seem to be, so there's a delay in terms of when the, si the symptoms first manifest themselves. Um, so yeah, there is definitely that, uh, that aspect to it. Um, uh, and it's what you what you then often see is that if you look at inside the brain, if you do brain scans, MRI, still scans, or um, uh, pictures of the brain, their brain show the same amount of of um, atrophy. So it's not the case that they show less damage somehow, and in some cases uh, even there's more damage, but they still continue to function at the same kind of level in their daily lives and a cognitive um, level. So, uh, so and that is I think is very revealing because it shows that the brain is somehow found a way to cope with that. You can deal with that kind of damage better compared to someone who doesn't speak um, several languages. And then, the, of course, the question is, how come? Why? 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. You felt it coming, right? That's the the ne- what's the mechanism underlying it? Well, it's a kind of thing. If you're, um, there are several answers to that question. I think overall, the the types of uh, brain structures that we see are activated when people speak multiple languages and actively have to switch between them. They t- also tend to be the structures that decline when we get older. So there's this brain training, I suppose. You've strengthened the connections between different parts of your brain as you. You, you juggle multiple languages throughout your lifetime. Uh, so that's one part of the story. It's also true that if you switch, if you regularly switch between languages, you train a part of your brain as well, the prefrontal cortex. And there's other um, cognitive functions, other things that you do that, that also are governed in that particular area. So focusing on something, uh, switching, uh, the, the ignoring your apps thing that we just talked about, right? So what you're going to focus on and what you're going to ignore. Um, so almost as a, a byproduct of being or juggling several languages, you also train that part of the brain that including things that have nothing to do with language so you 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 show an effect so you build up especially for older adults i mean you build up this this cognitive reserve you can say right you have this reserve in place um that people who speak one language don't necessarily have it, it's not just language right i think that's that's important to state there's all sorts mm-hmm. of life experiences that can do that so it's it's not just using several languages so we're like what then? Well, musical instrument of people, or if they do, right, if they play musical instrument, um, some things that we have no say over, by the way, so things like that are genetically determined for us uh, that we have no control over. But there's other things that we do, things like diet, whether we regularly exercise, um, even personality traits have been linked. If you're outgoing, if you're quite open to new experiences, all of these things have been linked uh, to building up cognitive reserve, to building up this this kind of extra, uh, more healthy years that would that, that could buy you. And the, the more combinatory, so th- if they're combined, these experiences it seems to be uh, seems to be better compared to just one of those experiences. So if you're a outgoing bilingual musician, fantastic. You've got a you've got a good life ahead of you. Yeah, that's a healthy life ahead of you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So to the extent that these benefits exist, then do they do we see them for all bilinguals? So regardless of the circumstances in which they grow up in, you know, whether they started learning or using two languages uh, early on or not, or depending on which languages it is or how many there are, right? If yeah. you have three or four, is that? Yeah, all really good questions. Yeah, I think in, so that one of the, the earliest studies that were looking into this effect, they found it for, for early bilinguals generally. So people who started learning a new language early on in life. But since then, there've been so many other studies that have also looked at different types of bilinguals and individual differences. So who will and who will not show this effect? Uh, and what they've come down to, so most of them seem to be in agreement that there's three different types, very roughly speaking. It's very hard to put people in boxes or categorize them. But in general, there's three different types of uh, people who speak multiple languages. There's the type that, who've learned different languages um, in their lives at one point, but they really don't use them. So they, they really only use one language these days in their daily lives. There's the uh, type of person that that really has learned them, but still continues to use them. And it can still also have been older when they started acquiring a language, but they're now at a life stage where they still use different languages and, and often different domains too. So for instance, one language at home uh, and one language outside the home at work or at school. 
Mm-hmm. And then thirdly, there's the, the, the type of multilingual that um, lives in an environment where there's lots and lots of multilinguals around um, who, so they, they can code switch, what we call code switching. So they can switch between languages quite freely because they know that the people that they will be talking to can also do that. So they can understand different languages. And you often see even languages being switched within a sentence. So they'll go from one language to the next. And the greatest effect what we see so far, so the people who show this kind of reserve effect when they get older, they tend to fall in the second category. So those people who continue to use um, different languages, but they use them in different domains. Because then the, the, the burden, let's say, on your, your system, on your brain is the greatest because you really have to carefully separate uh, your languages because you don't want to speak the wrong language to the wrong person who will not understand what you're saying. Right. So, you know, often people think if you've got English as your home language and you're growing up in the Netherlands, I'm thinking, uh, you know, for example, in in our family, oh, that's a great advantage. And it is in very many ways. Don't get me wrong. Mm. But in this circumstance, that's maybe uh, English is not a good language. You can better have a language that you can't speak outside the home Yeah, because uh, not very many people speak it because that's going to help you separate the two languages in terms of where you speak them. And that means that you have to you know, would suppress, ignore the other one yeah. uh, more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, it's very much environmentally determined, right? So in what kind of setting do you um, find yourself? And yeah, so that's, that's, that's the thing. And in general, so you also asked earlier, I think that's a really interesting question too. So does it matter which languages, right? Does it matter if languages yeah. are closely related, belong to the same language family versus they're completely different and they cannot even be compared? Uh, and on that, there's still no consensus. So there's um, studies that have found that if the, the languages are more closely related, if they look more alike, it's harder to separate them. It's more of a burden to separate them. It's harder to do. And because of that, there's a greater effect. But that's on the other side, there are studies that show the exact opposite. So it's um, that's a, a hard question to answer. The jury's out on that one. And what about the question, uh, the number of languages that you know? So if you're trilingual, or multi polyglot uh, when it comes to so how many languages you speak. Yeah, so there are um, uh, some studies on that, and they don't seem to find a huge effect, or a difference at least, between speaking two versus more than two uh, languages. There are definitely studies... Um, of people who look at, and that's generally some sort of elaborate case study. So several of these people who speak really a lot of languages and and speak all of them fluently, five up to 14 um, languages, and they do seem to have different brain structures. But then again, you would expect that, right, compared to um, people today. They they use all of them actively. Um, But overall, it doesn't seem to matter so much if it's trilingual or, or, or bilingual. Yeah. Okay. Clear. Um, are there any other possible benefits of being bilingual when it comes to growing older? Yeah. So I think in general, people tend to focus on the cognitive um, aspect because it's, I mean, we, I think we're all, um, in somehow maybe, or some way, maybe afraid that our brain's going to give out on us. And, uh, so it's, it, I can see the focus. <laughs> yeah. Right. At one point, not now, obviously we're, we're, the prime of our lives right so yeah i think so that i can see the focus but there are definitely other elements uh, as well and um so a sense of if you speak different languages you tend to speak those different languages with different people so your social networks may be different more elaborate 
Um, and so those social structures in place, uh, we talked about socio-effective earlier on. So really your social life, your attitudes, your your emotions associated with um, a certain language. And I think that's also a very important not to be underestimated uh, factor. And I think language can really play an important role in, in growing old and growing old in a, a way in which you would still experience a high quality of life. Um, and I think in general, right, loneliness or perceived loneliness, that's something that's quite prevalent for older adults and um, who are especially those in institutional homes but or institutional care institutions, but um, also those still what we call community dwelling, right? People who still live uh, in their own environment and in their own house. So, yeah, I think that's um, – and it has trickle-down effects too. So if you – if you're a social, if your quality of life's good, if you experience in general quite a high level of well-being, then that too has effects or repercussions for how you act cognitively. So there is this, um, there's a two-way system there, really. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so well, that's good to know, right? That it's not only this uh, this cognitive effect, which you know is really important. It is, yeah. Um, um, and it's definitely something that many people, and myself included, are slightly scared of. But yeah, the the other we shouldn't forget the other benefits that there are too. I just want to finish by asking you about something else that I know you've been uh, looking at, and that's not really uh, about people who, who grow up bilingual or use have been bilingual for a long time, but the using what we've just spoken about as a way of um, helping people who maybe don't speak another language who are monolingual. So bilingualism is a kind of therapy. I think I've heard you sp- speak about it as. Maybe you can tell us a bit about that because I think even though it's not really central to what we talk about on the podcast, I'm sure there are many people who'd be interested in knowing more about it. Yeah, no, it's, it. yeah, gladly. I think in uh, general, so we know about all of these advantages, right? The enrichment, we just talked about that quite elaborately of, um, of having the... Uh, the experience speaking multiple languages and everything that comes with that. But not everyone is as lucky <laughs> as that, right? So there are definitely people who don't have, who are not put in a situation where they grow up with multiple languages from birth or, or at one point have acquired another language. So we wanted to see, is there, if we they don't have that, and if they are older adults, so people we look at is, are between 65 and 85 when they come to us. Uh, and then we teach them a new language for a period of three months, English in this case, although they, they do speak some English, but uh, at a quite a rudimentary level. So they're enrolled in an English course. Uh, and this is uh, uh, done in the Netherlands. But in general, there's lots of similar studies around the world where older adults learn a new language and to see what kind of benefits um, are associated with that. So what do they show at the end of those three months uh, cognitively, but also socio-effectively? So their well-being, uh, does that improve? Uh, do they um, report other things in terms of self-fulfillment? Right? If you learn something as complex uh, as, an, as a new language, that's quite something to have achieved, right? And in general, I think there's quite a lot of discourse about decline and aging and things changing and mostly in a negative way. And I think it's, it also feeds into that. So if people start, if they're able, still flexible somehow enough to learn a new language, uh, that's, that's quite a a boost um, to your confidence. So yeah, we've compared learning a new language to, to other complex new skill learning, such as learning to play the guitar. We just talked about music. There were no people, maybe we should have done that, who learned both English and learning to play the guitar, but maybe that's (laughs) overtaxing. Yeah, that's a lot. 
uh, and then we also had groups that just got together. So they um, they uh, they met um, ever from time to time, but then they didn't learn anything new. Uh, they did like creative workshops. Well, that's it's learning something new, but it's not something that they had to actively practice each day. Yeah, yeah. And what and and what happened then? Was there a difference between the guitar learners and the language learners and the? So far, no. <laughs> so, um, but uh, what we do see actually, because we have healthy older adults, we had older adults who already suffered from uh, memory problems, and those who had mood um, uh, problems, so who late life depression uh, symptoms, and for the people with mild cognitive impairment, so those who like a precursor stage to Alzheimer's typically, that's what's what it's seen as, they did improve most compared to in, in the language condition compared to the music um, condition. So there seemed to be that, but this is very tentative, right? We're in the middle of analyzing the results. Uh, but it seems to be if people have to have to have more to learn, a, a, a great more to improve, and then language seems to be very beneficial. But one of the things that we did see is that both the guitar group and also the language group they they didn't deteriorate because three months is a long time, right? If you're already in a certain age band then they showed like it maintenance of um uh, instead of just further decline and we did see that um in in some cases in the group that just got together they steadily not hugely but they steadily um performed worse over time and we didn't see that in the guitar and in the in the language group so much uh, and they enjoyed it right that's also i mean well-being definitely increased in both um cases in uh, and sometimes some cases even more for the language group so they they have something uh that they like doing and that uh, you know and we don't know i mean maybe if we if we meet up with these people again in one year it will be interesting it's not part of the project but it would be interesting to see what kind of long-term effects this would have for them yeah yeah that's really interesting, right? That uh, you could use bilingualism, or not bilingualism, but learning a second language as a form of therapy. A, a, yeah, or yeah. one kind of therapy, maybe. Yeah, like, exactly. Uh, or preventative treatment somehow, right? If you start learning a new language now, uh, and that's a project that we're doing at the moment, if people are carriers of a certain gene that makes them have for like a predisposition for it to develop Alzheimer's, if we if they're they are multilingual now, does that prevent um, that from actually materializing? Because you if you're a carrier, you don't have to, of course, uh, get something. Uh, you get, don't have to to get Alzheimer's, but it's something that we're doing at the moment. It's another project, right? Well, we look forward to hearing the the results of that. Maybe in a, in another episode of the podcast, but for now, thanks for sharing all your insights about uh, being bilingual and growing older. Thank you. Second language therapy does seem like a nice prospect. Thanks to Meryl for this super interesting chat. We learned that if you grew up bilingually and continued to use your two languages as you get older, you're less likely to suffer from dementia. By that, we don't mean that you're less likely to get it, but if and when you do, you'll notice the symptoms later. So like playing a musical instrument and exercising a lot, it seems that bilingualism is a way to build up what we call cognitive reserve. And this seems to be especially the case when you use your languages in different contexts. So one language at home and the other at school or work. I hope many listeners will also be reassured to hear that in most cases, bilingual children will not lose their heritage language altogether if they don't continue to use it as they grow older. In fact, should they want to learn this language again later on, 
they'll likely pick it up more quickly than someone who has to start from scratch. So thinking back to Naya at the start of this episode, if she were to follow Danish language classes, chances are she'd do better than someone who has never had any contact with Danish before. And parents who are themselves bilingual are hopefully also reassured when it comes to their own language use. If you don't use a language very often, it's perfectly normal to have to search for words. So be kind to yourself if you too cannot always come up with the right word in your native language. We learned that these kinds of problems are less likely to occur when it comes to grammar, but not impossible, especially the parts of grammar that you learned last as a child will be susceptible to forgetting. Chances are, though, that as soon as you're back in your home country, your language will also wake up from its hibernation. Because being bilingual is very dynamic. It keeps changing and surprising. It keeps us on our toes. And if you ask me, that's what makes it all the more interesting. That's it for this episode. We'll be back in a month's time with the book review episode that I mentioned earlier. So we're going to be reviewing two books about bilingual parenting. Bilingual Success Stories from Around the World by Adam Beck and Raising Bilingual Families, a Practical Language Planning Guide by Eowyn Crisfield. I also talked to a parent about her experiences writing the family language plan Eowyn talks about in her book. Until then. If you want to know more about Kletz Heads, go to our website at kletzheadspodcast.org. That's where you'll also find more information about this episode. If you want to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Kletz Heads using your favourite podcast app. If you know someone else who might enjoy the podcast, then I'd really appreciate it if you would share it with them. You can do this via the website or in your podcast app. And if you're on social media, we'd love it if you followed us. Our handle is at Kletz Heads. Thanks for listening and until the next time. Or as we say in Dutch, till the volgende keer.